Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. This week on An Honorable Profession, I spoke with California Secretary of State Alex Padilla. We talked about what's going right and wrong in our democracy, his suggestions for improving our elections, his path from a kindergartner learning English to MIT, and what he'd like to do if he's appointed to Kamala Harris's vacant Senate seat. I've been lucky to live in California while Alex has run our elections, and I can tell you that he's a true public servant. As always, if you like these interviews, please tell a friend about An Honorable Profession and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Secretary Padilla, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you for having me, and I uh, hope you're uh, staying safe, healthy, and sane, given uh, everything going on this year. Relatively, relatively. And I want to actually, based on everything going on, I want to start with some good news, uh, and that has to do with the state of our democracy. So uh, when you took office in California as Secretary of State, uh, there were about 17.5 million registered voters, and now there are more than 22 million registered voters um, which is a real triumph for democracy in this day and age. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that and what you're seeing in terms of voter participation? Sure. And uh, just to be a little bit more precise, uh, November 2014, the very election when I was elected Secretary of State, there was a 17.7 million registered voters on the rolls. You know, the other statistic I remember vividly from that election is a uh, we had a 42.5% turnout of registered voters in that election. Uh, so I, I ran for this job knowing that we had a lot of work to do to strengthen our, our democracy and uh, improve participation rates. But boy, that election was maybe exhibit A on how much work we needed to do. Uh, to think there was still nearly 6 million people at the time that were eligible to vote, but not even registered. And a turnout of 42.5% being of, of those folks who were registered. That didn't include the people who had, weren't registered yet. We knew we had a lot of work to do. So uh, for the last several years, as uh, you know, we've been championing policies uh, to make both the act of registering to vote and casting our ballots uh, easier. Uh, maintaining the security and integrity of the process, of course, but affording more options, more accessibility more convenience to voters to participate, because if uh, we all recall high school government class, our democracy works best when as many eligible people participate. That's what this should be all about. That's what the Secretary of State's office should be in the business of. So we, uh, the first uh, year in office, I championed a legislative proposal uh, to adopt automatic voter registration in California, formerly known as California Motor Voters. So uh, in addition to all the other initiatives from online registration, pre-registration of 16, 17-year-olds, even same-day registration now, automatic registration has really been the biggest difference in improving registration numbers and rates in California. 
uh, in the last several years. We were the second state in the nation to adopt it, just behind the state of Oregon, our neighbors to the north. And uh, I think it's safe to say more than two and a half million of the new voters on the rolls in the last uh, few years have come by way of uh, automatic registration at the DMV. So uh, we've come a long way, now more than 22 million voters on the rolls, and uh, obviously a whole lot of them turned out this November. That is uh, fantastic. And you also had initiatives where you allowed uh, 16 and 17-year-olds to go pre-register. I went to some high school classes and uh, helped with that. We obviously saw a tremendous turnout in this November election. How do we how do we keep those numbers up going forward? So two great pieces there. The uh, pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. Uh, again, California is not the first state to do it, but we, we do it bigger and better than, than anybody. Uh, it was a law that I had a chance to vote on when I was in the state Senate. And uh, I remember in my early days as Secretary of State asking the staff, you know, so where were, are we on implementation? Uh, and at the time, the only formal instruction that had been given was to add uh, the pre-registration box to the voter registration form, if you will. Uh, there wasn't a plan to uh, allow for online pre-registration. And so uh, we, we quickly moved to add the online pre-registration option, just like we had online voter registration. And of course, we incorporated pre-registration to the automatic registration program through the DMV. And the program just really took off. And as we stand here today, well, more than 650,000 young people have pre-registered to vote in the last five years. And uh, I want to say nearly 500,000 of them have since aged up. They've turned 18. They were eligible to vote this November and are part of the big increase in turnout by young people. So another tremendously successful initiative uh, that has strengthened our democracy. In, in terms of the other factors that uh, led to historic turnout this November, uh, it's really a lot of the measures that we were championing prior to the pandemic uh, to increase access to the ballot that made even more sense during the pandemic. We're talking about expansion of vote by mail, expansion of in-person early voting, and additional options on election day of when, where, and how to vote if you live in a Voters Choice Act county. You know, I think the combination of all those policies kept voters safe this uh, election during the COVID-19 pandemic, but also led to uh, uh, increased participation because we gave folks more options uh, and, and more transparency, frankly, on their, their ballot being counted with the expansion of our ballot tracking system to all voters statewide. So I do think we're onto something that's a successful model, not just for California, but hopefully for uh, states across the country. And do you think it sticks around post-pandemic, primarily voter registration with, with early, early and in-person voting available? Yeah, I don't think we're going backwards on the voter registration front. You know, we've moved the needle significantly. It's not just uh, more voters registered in California than at any point in our history. The registration rate is the highest it's been in uh, uh, decades. Uh, and just uh, here's a data point, I think, to just appreciate the magnitude of what we're talking about. When we say 22 million voters on the rolls in California, that means there's more voters in California than there are people in Florida. You know, people say Florida, 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 every presidential election cycle, but national, the state population of Florida is less than the, the California electorate. So just to give us an appreciation for the scale of it all. You know, I don't see California going backwards on uh, vote by mail, for example. It's been growing in popularity for decades. 
in the primary, right? Prior to the, the COVID pandemic, uh, more than 70% of the ballots cast were vote by mail ballots. So th- these are just voter preferences trending in that direction. It made sense to build on that going into November. And I think we'll continue to see that uh, in the elections ahead. There's been a combination of some voters that may have been resistant to voting by mail in the past or to really appreciate the advantage of in-person early voting for voters who need to vote in person. Maybe some uh, county and, and elections officials at the local level that have been a little bit more hesitant in the past, and even some legislators. I think the success uh, of the November election, not just the big numbers in terms of participation, but how smooth this election ran sort of has proven the point. This is a successful model. People are happy with it. And uh, I think there's going to be significant public demand to make uh, some of these one-time changes more permanent. That's what I like to hear. Can I ask, you've talked a lot about the sort of the machinations of democracy, the operations of democracy in terms of uh, registration. We also face a crisis of democracy in terms of trust and fake news, money in politics. What fixes do you see see to fix sort of the, the ethos or the soul of democracy as well as its operations? Yeah, no, look, I couldn't agree more. In, in the last four years, even prior to COVID, you know, election security, election integrity had been in the spotlight. You know, going back to 2016 with the initial uh, chatter about uh, foreign interference in our elections or uh, cyber security threats to our elections. Well, as it turns out, you know, we, we made all the improvements uh, that were wise to do to shore up the the resiliency and integrity of our elections infrastructure, but the biggest threat continues to be the damage of misinformation and disinformation around elections. And why is that so dangerous? Even though, uh, you know, rumors and lies don't, uh, you know, put vote counts, uh, anything that undermines the confidence people deserve to have in the integrity of our elections is damaging to our democracy. And uh, I think it's it's not just in the, the election process uh, per se, as you mentioned, the, the flow of money in politics, you know, the, uh, the level of attacks, basis attacks on things like vote by mail uh, has uh, really caused a crisis in uh, our country. And so we continue to counter it through truth. You know, in California, we set up an office of election cybersecurity where half the battle is, yes, maintaining the integrity of our uh, elections infrastructure. But the, the bigger battle is really countering the misinformation, disinformation that we find, not just, but especially on social media. So I think that's going to continue to be a challenge. I think transparency and expanding transparency in the process is another uh, big area we need to focus on. We're, we're doing pretty good, but can do better on the campaign finance side. Right in California, for every state candidate and campaign Every dollar raised and spent has to be accounted for uh, and that information made available to the public. So we're working on uh, uh, better ways to continue to provide that data in real time to uh, uh, the general public as they they choose to see it. Uh, But uh, countering the information uh, about the the elections is one where I think another success story of 2020 was our transparency of the ballots themselves. You know, every voter in California was able to sign up for uh, what we called Where's My Ballot. It was our official ballot tracking system. You can sign up to receive automated email alerts, text message alerts, or phone alerts on the status of your ballot through the delivery process. 
not just from the county to the voter, but from the voter back to the county, including confirmation messages when the ballot was received by the county and when it was counted. So uh, despite the misinformation and attacks out there, voters had the ultimate in assurance that, yes, their vote was counted and accounted for. Yeah, I used it myself. Uh, it was great to, to, to track the ballot all the way through the system. Do you see any legislative or regulatory fixes for the issues around fake news and social media and what we can do to get more truthful information out there? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, there was already some movement late uh, this year. The legislature passed on an urgency basis uh, and the governor signed into law prior to the November election, making the uh, the spread of disinformation uh, a violation of, of state law. So that's another tool that California now has uh, in the toolbox uh, to help counter this stuff. I think, uh, you know, the old adage says an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, you know, through our same uh, Office of Election Cybersecurity, we launched a Vote Sure uh, and Vote Safe initiative uh, to try to be proactive in providing the official, reliable, uh, accurate information to voters before they may come across the misleading posts and tweets and whatnot. Uh, and that seemed to work pretty well. We even gave the public an opportunity to share with us any suspicious content they see on social media by reporting it to our office for review. We developed uh, the protocols with uh, social media companies to address any erroneous posts on their particular platforms, uh, and that's working pretty well. So we've got to continue to build on uh, some of those efforts. Uh, you know, another part of what made this November hugely successful was not just the, uh, you know, the changes in how people can vote, but uh, the voter education that went along with it, informing the voters of what their options were. So they were more aware of expecting that vote by mail ballot in their mailbox the deadlines to return their vote by mail ballot, their in-person early voting options, you know, all those sorts of things. So if we can, you know, make that a standard in future elections, a, a uh, aggressive uh, voter education effort, particularly in communities that have lower rates of historic participation, you know, that's going to pay dividends in terms of participation going forward. And are you talking to other secretaries of state around the country about uh, how we get to a national model or national standards for voter registration, you know, vote integrity and other other efforts that we've tried here in California. Oh, yeah. Not, not a day goes by that I'm not on the phone with a, a colleague of mine from across the country. And, and I should say on both sides of the aisle, not just Democrats, uh, on the comparing notes, best practices, those sorts of things. Uh, you know, for, for better and for worse, uh, states run elections. It's written to the Constitution. So that's why uh, the rules are a little bit different in each state. You know, I don't think we'll ever see a nationalized or centralized uh, elections administration. But can we be a little bit more standardized? I certainly hope so, because we have uh, successful, proven models at work in a number of states. So I do think the combination of multiple safe and secure opportunities for voters to register to begin with, whether it's in person, whether it's online, whether it's, you know, same day once voting has begun, you know, there's no reason we can't implement that across the country. Uh, we just need the political will to do that. Uh, and same thing with the multiple safe and secure options for being able to, to cast your ballot. You know, we, we know vote by mail works. It's safe and secure and convenient for voters. Uh, we know that we can give voters the uh, flexibility of voting not just at the polling place closest to where they live, but at any location 
in their county, and not just on election day, but over the course of several days of in-person early voting plus uh, election day itself. The technology is there, the security is there, they've proven to be successful, and uh, it's an agenda that I hope to continue to advance uh, across the country uh, to further strengthen our democracy. And, and look, not just because we're coming off a great election cycle, but uh, voting rights continues to be a national and frankly congressional debate. Uh, it's been more than 50 years since the signing of the original Voting Rights Act. It's been uh, uh, nearly seven years or more than seven years since the, uh, the Supreme Court's Shelby v. Holder ruling. And uh, it's been less than a year since the passing of Congressman John Lewis. So uh, what the future of voting rights in America looks like isn't just restoring the protections of the Federal Voting Rights Act, but I think looking forward, you know, what's the voting rights agenda for the 21st century? I think we've demonstrated in California. And last but not least, given that California is the most populous state in the nation with the largest electorate of any state in the nation and the most diverse electorate of any state in the nation, we've taken the excuses off the table. There's no other state that can say, well, that works for California, but it can't work here. No state is larger than us. No state has more voters than us. No state has, uh, you know, a more diverse electorate, including, you know, the multiple languages that are spoken here than us. If we can make these reforms work here, any state can make them work. But uh, we need the political will to make it happen. Let's hope that political will uh, emerges sooner rather than later. Um, I could dork out about uh, democratic reforms uh, for a long time, but I want to talk about your <laughs> you and me uh, both. <laughs> yeah, right. Your story, your personal story, and your path into public service is so fascinating. There was a great Washington Post uh, article about a week ago about it. Can you just tell our listeners about your your life and how you found yourself thinking about uh, election systems across this country? Uh, sure. You know, it's, uh, I think it has to start with a confession, you know, the confession being that, uh, growing up, you know, running for office, serving in elected office in any capacity was the furthest thing from my mind. It was the last thing I probably wanted to do when I was growing up. You know, my, my, my initial dreams were to, uh, play major league baseball, but, uh, I knew that the odds were, were against that. My favorite subject growing up was math. And so, uh, Somehow I did well in science that my teachers, my counselors uh, encouraged me to be an engineer, uh, which I thought was a, a smart career path, you know, a pretty stable, decent income in a way that would allow me to provide for a future family and for my parents, uh, because uh, my parents are immigrants from Mexico uh, for 40 years before retiring. My dad worked as a short order cook. My mom used to clean houses. And so uh you know, modest uh, income to, to put it mildly. So I knew that my sister, my brother and I would be responsible for you know, taking care of them in their retirement years. And so I thought engineering was, was a safe way to go. Uh, that explains how I ended up at MIT, uh, the dream school for engineering students. I uh, spent four winters in Massachusetts, uh, came home with a me- mechanical engineering degree. And, uh, you know, they say timing is everything. Uh, it really was. The economy was uh, brutal in Southern California in the early 90s. You know, holding out to an engineering job in the aerospace industry was uh, definitely not easy. And so uh, as I saw the writing on the wall uh, as a young uh, engineer, I realized, that, let me see what else is out there. Let me explore some other options. At the same time, you know, the year was 1994, and there was a measure on the ballot in 1994 that we referred to as Proposition 187. 
kind of a precursor to a lot of the anti-Latino, anti-immigrant rhetoric we hear from Trump and too many others these days. Uh, there was a question before the voters of California just a little bit more than 25 years ago that sought to make uh, immigrants and children of immigrants no longer eligible for public services. Uh, things like being able to go to county clinic uh, to seek medical attention if you're sick and you're uninsured. The way the measure was promoted was clearly scapegoating a, a growing Latino immigrant community in California. You know, think of this, the message that it sent me, fresh home from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology with a degree in hand, the culmination of not just a, an academic dream for myself, but my parents' dreams in coming to the United States to work hard, to sacrifice, to try to provide better opportunities for uh, their children. And the message we're getting from the governor of California at the time was, you know, that California is going downhill and it's the fault of people like your family. And so I knew then that uh, I may not have ever considered getting involved in government or politics, but at that point, I had no choice. I had to engage. I had to engage a lot of my friends and family members and neighbors and community members at large if we were going to change the politics of California. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't me by, alone by a long shot. There was a whole generation of young people who I think saw the light of needing to engage in the political process. And you had a whole wave of people like my parents who had been here for nearly 30 years with no urgency to become citizens finally deciding to take that step, not only to, to sort of protect themselves, but literally so that they could register and that they could vote. They needed their voice heard in the process. And if you weren't a citizen, you didn't have the right to vote. And so we look at California today, you know, we've come a long way since then. You don't hear proposals like that coming out of the state legislature uh, in Sacramento. Uh, sadly, we hear, uh, you know, that kind of rhetoric coming from other parts of the country and even uh, out of the Oval Office between now and January 20th, it'll continue, no, uh, no doubt. Uh, but in California, that's not the case. And what that's all meant for me is, you know, the moment I decided to, to get engaged, I started off as, a, you know, maybe a volunteer registering voters, volunteering on a couple of campaigns before I managed a few campaigns, before I ran for office myself in 1999 uh, for the Los Angeles City Council. So I've served on the city council. I've served in the state legislature. And 25 years after Proposition 187, I get to serve as the chief elections officer for the state of California. You know, not to put my, my thumb on the scale one way or the other, but just to make sure that the doors to democracy are as wide open as possible for all eligible voters. And uh, I think the representation we have at all levels of government from California and the policy direction of California is so much better as a result. And just to fill out an important detail of the story, so you entered kindergarten not speaking English, and then you end up graduating from MIT. That's an amazing American story, California story, as you and your community face Proposition 187 and all these, all these impacts. Passing up engineering jobs to work in public service, can you talk about how you made that determination, especially for for listeners out there who may be, you know, children of immigrants and wanting to provide for their for their parents and it looks a lot less lucrative to enter public service than it does to stay in the private sector. How'd you how'd you balance those competing needs? Yeah, no, look, I, I knew early on that it was uh, gonna be <laughs> at least a little bit of a of a financial sacrifice, 
you know, you, you earn a decent wage in public service. Uh, and, and I'm not just talking about elected officials, by the way, even being a staffer, a staff member, uh, or working in just in government generally, uh, there, there's decent wages, uh, maybe not as much as you might earn in the private sector. But for me, more than worthwhile, given the, the passion of some of the issues I was trying to address and the fulfillment of trying to lead on some important changes across the board, whether they're in the public health space, in the education space, you know, in the economic space, on and on and on. It's not just uh, in, in the voting rights space. You know, I, I do tell people because I encourage more young people to pursue careers in science, technology, engineering, uh, arts, and math. We need more you know, people pursuing STEAM careers, uh, not just education, and to stay in them. Uh, you know, you don't have to be like me and completely leave an engineering degree behind and commit yourself only to public service. There's opportunities to serve either in office or as an advisor on boards and commissions at all levels of government and uh, and maybe do both some public service while working in the private sector it doesn't have to be an either or but for people who are interested and open to serving in public office uh, i do think there's a need for more people with technical backgrounds uh, in policy making to look at some of the major issues that we have in our country today whether it's uh, combating climate change, uh, making further advances in uh, in healthcare and treatments, for example. You know, we're, we're in the midst of COVID. There's some promising vaccines. You know, those are scientists and engineers at work trying to provide a COVID-19 vaccine, not politicians. And so I think there's there's uh, definitely room for uh, te- technical thinkers in the policymaking space to ask the right questions to address the most pressing challenges for our our state, for our nation, and our world today. I know that you spend a lot of time reaching out to young people about not only voting, but public service generally. When you were out there talking to them, especially young uh, Latino voters, uh, Latinas, what, what are they saying about how they view government and democracy and public service? And where can we tap into that energy and ingenuity to improve our public policy? Yeah, well, I think it's a two-part answer because it's changed dramatically, I feel, uh, in the last six years. You know, uh, yes, I've tried to do that throughout my time in public office as a city council member reaching out to young people, as a state senator reaching out to young people, and as secretary of state. As secretary, I've literally had a chance to visit every corner of California uh, with that message and to share my story. You know, I think years ago, it was it was a little bit tougher of a challenge to convince people why public service uh, and civic engagement was so important. I think my sheer presence because of my story made a little bit of a difference. I know when I was in high school, very few people, you know, come and speak to me to try to inspire me uh, into public service that, that I could relate to or that looked like me. And so I think it's both an opportunity and a responsibility that I have as the first Latino secretary of state in California to be out there as, as an example, as a role model, and to share my story it, to the extent that, uh, more young people in California today can relate to it and maybe be informed, if not inspired by it, then, uh, then that's huge. But when we flash forward to today, I think what we have lived through for the last four years uh, has changed uh, the, the world. Um, you know, I go to high schools prior to COVID, of course, uh, and try to make that same pitch. It's not as hard anymore. Uh, 
uh, what we have lived through for the last four, four years has made the case to every young person paying attention. Yes, politics matter. Yes, elections matter. Yes, election results have consequences. And so I'm not there to inform or to open their eyes anymore. I'm just there to provide the information and the opportunity to register to vote, uh, to, to let them know what their options are for voting and how to go beyond that, whether it's working as a student poll worker, whether it's uh, engaging in a community organization or on the political campaign. I know the, the awareness is out there. Uh, the interest is out there. The passion is out there. We just got to channel uh, the next generation of people into uh, uh, the right uh, strategic actions. Uh, and we're seeing it. Look at the summer that we just had post uh, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. A lot of the protests and demonstrations across the country were led by young people. So uh, I actually feel pretty optimistic about the future leaders uh, across the country. That's good to hear. We uh, we need optimism. And uh, I want to just ask, so you talked about how you ran for uh, city council and then the state legislature, and now you're in a state executive position. Can you talk about a little bit about the differences in those roles and the skill sets uh, that you use in each one and which, if you'll say, which one you prefer as a, as a, as a way to serve? Yeah, it's a, uh, uh, in some ways it's a, it's a hard question to answer and in some ways it's an easy question to answer. So I'll give you both. The, the, the reason it's hard, the reason it's hard is because the, the nature of each of the jobs is, is pretty unique, uh, right? As a chief executive, uh, yes, it, it feels pretty good not to have to round up votes for every decision that I want to make. I have uh, the responsibility uh, under me is tremendous leading uh, one of the more important state agencies in the state of California. Uh, as a legislator, you know, it was uh, intriguing. It's a different skill set because you have ideas that you present as legislation and you got to go build support for it, uh, not just uh, outside the, the Capitol, but uh, literally inside the Capitol, trying to line up votes from amongst colleagues. You know, the city council experience is a little bit of a hybrid. You know, sort of a, you're a semi-executive for your specific council district, but uh, you're part of the council as a body. Uh, so here's the easy part, uh, as unique as each of the jobs uh, have been, uh, and I've enjoyed each one of them tremendously. I think at the end of the day, it really boils down to uh, ideas and relationships. Right? What ideas do we have to try to make you know, your, your district, your community, your state, or the world a better place? Right? And whether that, that manifests itself into a municipal ordinance, or a uh, legislative proposal or state law, you know, that's maybe the technical process, but it all starts with the idea, the idea and the relationships. Do you have the relationships necessary to make your idea come to fruition? You know, what are the relationships that you need? You know, it's uh, working with different constituencies and stakeholders to build consensus and support around your idea. You know, do you have the relationships to line up the votes uh, to, to get it approved or signed into law? You know, so uh, each of the jobs is uh, technically maybe different, but at the end of the at the end of the day, I think public service is about trying to make the world a better place. And uh, if you want to be influential, you need ideas and relationships. And how, if you're starting out, how do you find those ideas and relationships in order to in order to make the change in whether it's your community or your district or your state that that, that you want to make? Yeah, it's uh, you kind of kind of jump in with with both feet and with both ears. 
you know, don't, don't let uh, maybe a lack of a clear, big, bold idea stop you from getting involved to begin with. You know, you, there's a lot to be learned along the way. And as you gather more information, more experience, you know, and you connect some dots, I think that's when a lot of the big ideas come about. So uh, when I say jumping in with both feet, especially for young people, I give this advice all the time, you know, pick a general issue you're passionate about because that'll inform maybe where a good starting point is. Is it a political campaign? Is it a government office? Is it at the city level? Is it at the county level, the state level, or the federal level? But once you're there, you, you get exposed to a lot of uh, government activity, the, the quote-unquote how things really work, uh, and a lot of information, and a lot of people. You know, there's a tremendous amount of people that are civically active and uh, you know, are trying to do the right thing, uh, for the right reasons, and uh, it's a tremendous network that you'll find yourself tapping over time for support, for ideas, for information, uh, et cetera. And so uh, don't, don't let the lack of a specific big idea at the beginning keep you from getting involved to begin with. Uh, but once you do, don't be afraid to, to constantly network, reach out, uh, expand your uh, network of contacts, and listen, listen, listen. It's by listening that we, uh, that we learn, and uh, you make yourself very uh, helpful and valuable when you become when you gain more expertise uh, in one subject matter or multiple subject matters. That's good advice. It's reaching out and yeah, spending a lot more time uh, listening than talking, which is uh, I think the opposite of what people think elected officials do. But actually, it's it's the key. It's the key to success. Um, right. Two ear, two ears and one mouth. <laughs> exactly. It's Tuesday, December 1st when we're talking, and um, I'd be remiss to not ask you about uh, the appointment to Senator Kamala Harris's Senate seat, for which you're uh, one of the contenders. Can you talk about what, if the governor uh, looks your way, uh, you would you would want to do in Washington? Yeah, well, you know, first let, let me just acknowledge that it's, a, it's an honor just to be part of the conversation. It was a tremendous opportunity. Absolutely. And I'm interested more than absolutely. But at the end of the day, I have to be respectful of the governor's timeline and the governor's decision. If it were me uh, or whoever it is for that matter, I think the first order of business in, in, in Congress is uh, some additional economic and COVID relief. The, both the health impacts and the economic impacts of this pandemic have been absolutely devastating for far too many families far too many communities uh, and just, I mean, bad for everybody across the board, but disproportionately harsh for communities of color and lower income communities. So uh, I think the first order of business for uh, the next U.S. Senator from California has to be to make, uh, be integral in whatever the negotiations are that will deliver a package uh, in a way that's uh, good for working people, but is mindful of the size of the California population, the diversity of the California population and the diversity of our economy. You know, we uh, uh, feel good when we uh, uh, post and tweet our appreciation to essential workers out there. And we should continue to do that. But the way to pay honor to essential workers uh, is to provide them the resources and support that they need uh, for their families to, to weather this pandemic until there's ultimately a vaccine that's uh, widely available, effective, uh, and accessible. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. As we as we look at COVID cases spike, and the impacts that I see at the county level of just trying to provide necessary healthcare, and then watching uh, as we head into the what should have been 
a holiday season to give our small businesses a chance to survive. Um, watching that diminish is is extraordinarily painful, and watching you know there be no response from from Washington is uh, is makes it even worse. And and as we prepare to build back, you know, it's uh, again for better and for worse. COVID has exacerbated inequities that uh, were kind of glossed over prior to the pandemic. You, know, you look at how many children have to homeschool right now because of COVID, you know, and it's, it's begged the question of who has reliable uh, broadband access and who doesn't. Uh, and whether you, even if you do, who's got the digital literacy and support at home uh, to keep up, not just with Zoom, but uh, all the education related apps that are required. You know, it's exacerbated the uh, uh, education uh, uh, resource gap that has existed, not just across California, but across the country. So as we recover and as we rebuild, how do we rebuild smarter and more equitably uh, when it comes to issues like that? Of, you know, in addition to the access to health care, quality of care, you know, who's more at risk of exposure because of the nature of their jobs versus others, you know, who's able to, who's been able to keep their job as opposed to who's been uh, laid off and is now out of work. Just uh, on and on and on. A lot of work to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for your your work in expanding democracy in our state. And in fact, all the election workers uh, across the country, Democrat and Republican and citizens who showed up and volunteered. This was a this was a great story in a year when we needed better news <laughs> about our about our collective uh, ability to 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 operate in civic life and uh, you played a major role in our state uh, and and as you say hopefully showing other states that there there there's ways to to expand uh, voting and uh, protect the integrity of elections and and engage the next generation in politics no, absolutely. It's a, a silver lining of a story and enough otherwise a challenging year. So uh, kudos to the the local elections officials across California and the country and all the new first time volunteer poll workers. You know, uh, we think back uh, historically, we've relied on senior citizens and retirees to help administer the election on Election Day. But a lot of them were not available this year for obvious reasons. And so it would be literally in a matter of months had to recruit a whole new generation of poll workers uh, to keep our democracy uh, resilient. And uh, uh, folks uh, across uh, uh, the state and across the country of all stripes uh, stepped up to the challenge. So uh, another uh, great uh, piece of a great silver lining story in 2020. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I give my students at UC Santa Cruz extra credit uh, to volunteer as poll workers, and uh, they love it. One, they get to see the systems up close, and two, they get to spend the day uh, talking to some of those senior citizens uh, and building relationships they otherwise wouldn't have while they while they try to help help our democracy work. Well, that's great. That's good. More 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 professors ought to do that. <laughs> thank you so Secretary Padilla thank you for joining us today uh, I want to wish you best of luck on whatever your political future holds I hope you uh, do become a voice for California at the national level it would be uh, I think it'd be meaningful in, in many many ways well thank you very much thank you and uh, asked to tell you please continue to stay safe help us spread the word keep wearing masks everybody Use that hand sanitizer, stay at home as much as possible, but distance if you're out and about. Uh, it's going to take each of us doing our part to flatten the curve and 
get to the other side of this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you. And have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Thank you.